Thrilled to be with you. We're going to have a lot of fun this morning. Uh, deep, deep stuff. But, uh, and, and, and what we're going to do this morning is what people don't think is possible, and that is we're going to have the joy of, uh, of looking at the Levitical law and understanding as best we can by the Holy Spirit and by the study of Scripture what this is telling us not only about what the Jewish people were allowed to eat, but what it tells us about God and his expectations. So we're going to turn to the text. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 11. But uh, first, let's pray. Our Father, we come before you knowing that as we do, you are holy. Father, as we turn to the book of Leviticus We see a testimony to your holiness, which reminds us of the necessary holiness of your people, because we are your people. Father, may we learn from this passage of Scripture what we need to know in order to be faithful and obedient and pleasing to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, Leviticus chapter 11. As uh, is our pattern, we will look to the text and read the text, or at least a good portion of it, before speaking of the text. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you may not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the roof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Eight verses into Leviticus chapter 11. We have massive categories here of importance. But these are massive categories of importance to God's covenant with Israel. As we shall see, these in the regulatory aspects are not commandments to us. Now, this puts us in an unusual position, so we're going to have to do some history, we're going to have to do some some, some deep exegesis here, we're going to have to do some biblical theology in order to understand what this passage means to us. But in order to do so, we want to know, first of all, what it meant to the Jewish people and, and what it means about God's revelation here and the unfolding of the Old Covenant. Remember that in Leviticus, the law is being given, and it's called Leviticus because the law... Uh, is, uh, is that which is to be administered by the Levitical priesthood. And the, the same material, a good deal of it, is found in the book of Deuteronomy, for instance, chapter 14. And, and so as, as we think about this, we, which in Deuteronomos, this is uh, Latin for the second law, the second giving of the law. So we understand we're, we are expecting this. And besides that, anyone who knows anything about the Jewish people knows about their dietary laws. That, that turns out to be a very important thing. If anyone who knows anything about the actual life and practice of the Jewish people knows what we would call the, uh, the word kosher. There are things 
acceptable and righteous to eat, and there are things unrighteous to eat. And yet we can begin reading this as if what we're looking at is, uh, well, let's, let's pretend, number one, that we don't even believe in God. So this is a, this is a, a method of, of thinking called phenomenology. It's a very bad worldview, but it can be a helpful technique in the sense that let's just pretend for a moment that we're not thinking as Christians. So we're going to, the, the phenomenologists say we're going to bracket that for a moment. We're, we're going to come back to it, but, but let's, let's try to read this the way a secularist would read this. The way a secularist or a, a religionsgeschichte, the, the, the German religion history. So we're, we're just going to consider this the way the liberal German theologians considered it. This is just evidence of human religion. There's no God behind this. This is evidence of an ancient testimony of ancient human religion. In this case, the human religion of the people known as Jews. Well, the whole idea of religionis geschichte or, or religion's history like that and the history of religions, and you see that, if you see a university course in the history of religions, it's that German liberal approach or some successor that says, we're not, God's not really important here. This isn't a class about God, only what people thought about God, only how this took different religious expressions. But here's something that you might not have thought about. The, the theme of... Uh, structural anthropology in the early 20th century, which had massive impact, by the way, does today. Uh, this, uh, this idea that there are just uh, structures of human thinking. One of the most important, uh, or I should say influential, of the far left-wing intellectuals in the United States is a man whose name you may have seen. He has a Jewish background, as a matter of fact. His name is Noam Chomsky. And uh, Noam Chomsky is, a, is, is, a, is a, a structuralist of the extreme sort. Uh, and, and kind of a Nobel laureate-worthy mind, to be honest. He's, he's, he's intellectually very opposed to everything I represent, but I, I, I will say that at least he's consistent. And, uh, and you know, he, he, there are brilliant um, scholars who, uh, unfortunately, uh, build edifices upon unfortunate foundations with unfortunate effects. Noam Chomsky has probably changed the entire field of linguistics because... One of the things he's dealt with is what you might consider to be the structure of language. And so, for instance, fascinating stuff. Why is it, why is it that the sounds made by human infants that take the form of words are remarkably the same no matter the culture or the language system? That makes sense? So no matter what culture, and by the way, you know, the, the, this is frustra frustrating to all the devoted mothers who wake up in the middle of the night to feed their children, Children almost never say anything maternal first. And uh, they, they, say, they say, dada. And uh, that, that should tell everyone how the importance of fathers in the whole structure of the universe. Uh, or it could say that the vocal structure of infants can more easily form D sounds than M sounds. But that is not Chom's, Noam Chomsky's big question. Noam Chomsky's question is, why do those D sounds basically mean father in every culture? That doesn't make sense. That, that, in other words, and by the way, in, in most cultures, whatever is a snake begins with a S. You can figure that one out. I don't have to stay up all, all, all night trying to figure that one out. But, uh, but the, the, why, why, are, why is there a M? Why, why, why does that maternal and, and D? 
Why is that paternal? I have no clue about that. But anyway, Noam Chomsky you know, would look at this and, uh, and as a structuralist would say, well, that, that, this, is just, this is the structure of language. It turns out in his entirely secular worldview, he would say language is structural and so meaning is structural. It, it's actually kind of programmed like a, like a computer into the human brain. He would explain it by evolution. Well, you know, at least he's looking at some interesting stuff that we think he's coming from it exactly wrong. We would say it's the imago dei, okay, right? But the same way structuralists and phenomenologists looking at religion, looking at all the different religious groups, are going to say, well, here's something very interesting. Here's something very interesting. If you just think of religion, and especially you look at ancient pre-modern religion, you look at the religions that emerged before and during what, uh, what they might call the axial age, this, this axis of world history turning in the ancient world. So somewhere somewhere roughly uh, two, three, four thousand years, we would say before Christ. You, you, you look at that period, these world religions emerge, this massive explosion of world religions. Commonalities include sacrifice. It, it, it's not universal, but, but near, in, in almost every one of those, now again, we're just a structuralist here. We're just, we're just trying to do anthropology, uh, religion history, religionis kashikta. We're just, we're just going to try to do that. Okay, so Here's something interesting. You look across all these religious groups, there's a common, if not universal, theme of sacrifice. Something gets killed. Now, this also is horrifying, right? Because you go to the Aztecs, or you go to South America, or you go to some other places, it's virgins and children, or, and sometimes men as well, uh, who are captives, who are being killed. And by the way, why virgins and children? It's, it's horrifying, especially... If you look at the ancient Canaanites, uh, and this is one of the reasons why you see these Old Testament commands that you may not sacrifice your children nor break their legs. Or you may see the, the breaking of the legs more in tradition than in Scripture. But you say, well, what is that all about? It is because in, uh, in the ancient Canaanite religion, the god Molech was considered a god of wrath, and to appease him, you sacrificed children. And they were generally old enough to uh, crawl or to walk. So they weren't babies. They were, they were, they were very, young, very, very young children, preschoolers and et cetera. And uh, so, for instance, uh, horrifyingly, when an effort was made some time ago to uh, lengthen the runway in Damascus, they found an ancient um, Canaanite worship place and it was filled with the bones of small children that had been burned and broken. Now, here's the, here's the thing. They were broken before the sacrifice so that they could not crawl out of the fire. It's just absolutely horrifying, beyond our, our imagination. And, of course, we mentioned the, the Aztec and, and Incan forms of, uh, of human sacrifice. I, I mean, those, those pyramids in, in South and Mesoamerica built in part just in order for these rites to take place. And so you say, well, there's, there's sacrifice all over the place. And we can understand if you're a structuralist, you, you don't believe in God, but you do believe in religion as a human artifact, then you can see why sacrifice makes sense, right? Sacrifice makes sense because there is a sense of sin and wrong and there is, and you see this so much in the background to the Old Testament when you're looking at the Canaanite religion like Baal 
uh, and, and his wrath is coming against the people. He's withholding rain, and the crops aren't going to be able to grow, and we're going to starve, so we have to appease the angry God, and so we do so by sacrifice. And, and the ultimate sacrifice is the, is the sacrifice of something alive. And then, so how do you, how do you, how do you ritualize that? Well, you can, you can see how you'd ritualize that. If you want to give this to God, you do it in his sight, and then you burn it because then the, the smoke goes up to the heavens. And so you're, you're, you're sending the message to God. And so if you're a structuralist, you're just a religion historian, you're looking at this, you say, look at all that commonality. Look, uh, you know, by the time you get to the 19th century and the rise of, especially in Europe and then coming to the United States of these liberal, secular ways of trying to understand religion, then you look at this and say, okay, the sacrificial thing makes sense. You can find sacrifice of animals. Virtually everywhere you find human ancient civilization makes sense. And then you go to a passage like we just read from Leviticus chapter 11, and you go, okay, religionis geschichte. We're going to do religion's history. We're going to look at all the systems of the world. We're going to look at Mesoamerica. We're going to look at ancient northern Europe. We're going to look at all the different places where this kind of religious cultus is found. But it's found in only one place. There is nothing parallel to the human, to the uh, Israel code that God gave concerning what they are to eat. His covenant people have a dietary law that is found amongst no other religious system. Took me a while to get there, but it's just shocking. Now, there's another principle of religionis geschichte, or, or a phenomenology, just considering this, and that is you have to explain not why things are found many places, you have to explain why something is found once. Does that make sense? So, it actually is an interesting little intellectual tool. If something's found everywhere, it's not so interesting. If it's found one place, it gets really interesting because something has to explain why here now this happened. So here's the religionis geschichte problem. Okay, so why just before the conquest of Canaan, or in preparation, we should say, for the conquest of Canaan, why these particular laws? And these are the laws that in Deuteronomy, Moses will call so sweet and so righteous and so good. And you'll notice what he says in a passage like you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. What does Moses say? Moses said, look, all over the world, look all over the world. And it, he's just absolutely right. Look all over the world from the east to the west to the north to the south and find any people with laws like these. And this is said with great pride. As he says, you know, this is... What other people heard the voice of God speak from the midst of the fire and survive? From my theme verses from my entire life from the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.30. It's, it's the gift of revelation. This is what happens, by the way, every Sunday morning when we hear the word of God preached. We get to hear the, the voice of God speak from the midst of the fire, and then we get to go have lunch because we didn't die. And the thing is, if you understand who God is, as you do, and you understand his holiness and our sinfulness, there is no explanation other than his mercy in Christ for how we get to come here, the word of God, preach, and then go home not dead. All right. 
So, prepare for worship. <laughs> so this is a this is a this is a singularity. This is this is this is unique. Okay, so we're doing religionis geschichte here. We're just trying to think. You know, this is just religion. This is a singular. The other word we come up with is weird. Very, very weird. Because there's something else you generally don't think about. And that is the fact that there is no supermarket. There is no abundance of food. There's a scarcity of food. The, the lack of food, famine, lack of nourishment, lack of calories as we would now know. It's catastrophic. And Israel's here being told you can't eat, in some cases, most of it. That doesn't seem to be a very good cultural or biological survival tactic. And it doesn't. And so, you know, honestly, let's, let's be honest, we're going to fast forward to the book of Acts, fast forward to Peter's vision, we know it's coming. Let's just go ahead and say to each other, we're thankful. Some of you had babies. And you're in church. And you have to go sacrifice something in order, in, in order to come to worship. That we, I'm thankful that I don't live under the Old Testament dietary code. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. I want to be very candid about that. The issue of calories is a very important issue. For the opposite reason you're thinking. You're worried about too many calories. For most human beings throughout most of human history, the issue would be too few. Um, and th this has ramifications, I mean, obviously, just in terms of life, sustenance. It has a great deal to do with growth. The, uh, the experience of famine, the experience of too little food, I don't know if, if any of you have ever been to a place like the Hermitage, uh, Andrew Jackson's home, north of, uh, north of Nashville. It's an interesting place. Or you may have gone to the Patton Museum at, uh, used to be at Fort Knox. Hopefully it still is. It's in George Patton, the infantry general. Well, in both cases, most striking with Andrew Jackson you have his inaugural, and remember how early Andrew Jackson came in the American national experience. And you have Andrew Jackson's inaugural clothing, his suit. And you look at it and you go, he looks 13 or 14 years old. How, that's a president of the United States? You know, mm. uh, and, and, and Patton, you look at them and you go, you know, you're thinking of, George S. Patton, you're expecting, you know, somebody that looks a little bit like Thor, and, uh, and instead looks a little like something like, uh, you know, George, the 15-year-old, and you go, what happened? And then if you go to Europe, one of the most interesting things is that is if you're in uh, the borderlands, in the, 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 what Timothy Snyder calls the bloodlands uh, of Eastern Europe, so ravaged in the 20th century, just horrifyingly. And you look at the children, they're just, I don't mean too much today. I mean, if you look at the pictures after the war, and you look and you say, they're not getting any food. Um, by the way, uh, there's a, this is just a little footnote here. It tells you something about the background of this. 
there is a, a whole medical category these days of early puberty for children. And uh, so you've got, you've got 11, 10-year-olds in some cases, 11, 12, 13. And then you put that in the background when Johann Sebastian Bach was a choir master in Germany. And uh, I enjoyed, uh, especially in the year 2017, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, taking so many different groups and doing lectures, and you'd be in a place like Eisenach or someplace like that, and you'd be, or uh, Erfurt, any, any number of different places, and uh, you'd, you'd be where there'd be these intersections with history, and then you'd point out, well, you know, the only people who would have been singing in this church, there would have been boy choirs, and, and the boys were sopranos. And so you had boy sopranos, and these beautiful boy choirs still continue in the Anglican church especially. And... Uh, but you, they're no good once they go through puberty. Uh, let's just say they're not sopranos anymore. And as a matter of fact, when their voices start to crack, well, they're out as choristers. But uh, Johann Sebastian Bach wrote a letter, and I believe it was from, from uh, it was either from Eisleben or Eisenach, in, in which he's, he's writing to parents saying, now normally boys uh, enter the, 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 uh, the puberty uh, about so that they're out of the choir by about age 17. You're 17? 17? But it's because it wasn't until, frankly, the last half of the 20th century that people understood that the trigger for puberty was weight. And so we have some early puberties, at least in part, triggering their endocrine system by these kids having, they're, they're, just, they're just putting on weight, you know, and they're, when they're seven, eight, nine, or something like that, this triggering things. Sure, there's more to it, and I'm not a medical doctor, but it just shows you the calories are a big thing. Calories are a huge thing. There's a number of calories beneath which human life is not sustainable. There's another mid-range of calories in which um, you, you just don't have good life. Your bones are brittle. You know, you just, it's just it's just not a good life. All these different things tell us calories, calories, calories are important. And that's why most cultures are as extravagant as possible in the rules of what they will eat. And you say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, I don't want to specify country names. I, I don't want to do that in kind of a National Geographic way. But I'll simply say that there are people around the world who eat things you would not eat, not because of kosher law, but because you would find such things very, very difficult to eat. For many missionaries in certain parts of the world, one of the moral crises is, what do you do when a local host serves you monkey brains? Which, by the way, can be extremely dangerous because of uh, prion diseases. But before you get to the danger, you got the first part. And, and th I mean, th there are people around the world who consider bugs to be delicacies. And uh, I can still remember a very unkosher moment in my life when I actually became the man in Boy Scouts because I accepted the challenge of eating a particular bug. And uh, it, was, it, was, it, was a, it was a courage moment. It was not a gourmet moment. I did not go, now you know, this is going to become a lifestyle now. Uh, this, is, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is really good. No, I mean, it's just, it's, it's gross. 
First thing I learned about eating that bug, by the way, just in case you have never done it, never been a 12-year-old boy, and never had that dare, they do taste exactly like they smell. <laughs> just in case you were wondering. It's, it's a complete match, and that's bad news. But you look at this, and so people are, you have to explain why anyone would deny calories. Why? You, and they're already living on the edge of, of starvation. They're only, they're only alive because God's giving them manna in the morning. And now God's telling them, oh, when you come into the land of promise, just please understand this. In the flow of covenant history, God is saying when you come into the land of abundance, flowing with milk and honey, there's going to be a lot of stuff in there you can't eat. Because you're mine. And so just look at the passage, look how it begins. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Now, you hear that, and you go, oh, this is going to be a big list, right? Well, the principle comes in verse 3. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Ah, okay, good. What are these characteristics? Parts the hoof, a cloven hoof, a, a hoof that is not... A foot, as in with toes, that, become, that becomes crucial. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's not a unified hoof as a horse. It's cloven, which means at least a two-part, if not a multi-part hoof. But you can't eat everything that has a cloven hoof. Pigs have cloven hooves. But we don't know this yet. But you'll notice we do know the pigs are excluded because they don't, they don't chew the cud. So there is going to be an exception, which is especially the, the, the camel, uh, which is going to be explained. And it's not exactly an exception. It's just an appearance exception. We'll get to that. Camels can look like they're chewing the cud. But so long as the animal has a cloven hoof and, and chews the cud, Israel may eat it. Okay, so... What in the world's chewing the cud? It's a small talk in the world I grew up in. First thing I, the first time I heard it, I think, was from my grandmother, when my grandfather and the other people who worked with him would be on the back porch after the work day, and they'd be talking. My mother, my grandmother would say, "Well, the men are out back chewing the cud." Well, I wanted to know what cud was. What are they? And they don't appear to be chewing. Uh, they are uh, they're talking. Okay, so it's 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 a form of digestion of, of a system. And ju just because I, w I wanted you to have a technical definition, you ready? This is cud chewing, technically defined. When food has been degraded sufficiently, it passes from the reticulorumen through the reticulorumosal orifice to the omasum, followed by the abomasum, to continue the digestive process in the lower parts of the alimentary canal. No enzymes are secreted in the rumen. Enzymes and hydrochloric acid are only secreted from the abomasum, fourth stomach onwards, and the ruminants function from that point onwards, much like monogastric animals, such as pigs and humans. Oh, thanks, so we just got put in with the pigs as monogastric, meaning you and I have one stomach, so also does the pig. All right, so what does chewing the cud do? Okay, so chewing the cud, it, it turns out to be very important. 
And, and th this comes up in my life at times when I'm deciding what I'm going to order off a menu. Okay. When you eat something, you're eating what it ate. Are we, are we following this? So, for instance, we're, I was talking to someone about duck. Duck. Uh, I knew that when I asked Mary Kaler to go out to dinner with me on this particular time, I was going to ask her to marry me. She was smart enough to figure that out, partly because, like, her mother's, like, hovering, and her brother, who was my college roommate, taking photographs as we went out to dinner. So this subtlety here. And uh, so we, uh, we, we went out to dinner, and I spent the most money. It had basically nothing. I spent the most money I ever spent on a meal in my life. Mary had the sense to order a steak. But I, knowing I am going to ask this woman I love to marry me, and this is one of the most momentous nights of my life, I'm going to order something I never ordered before, nor had I ever envisioned nor thought of paying for before. I ordered duck l'orange because it sounded so sophisticated. It just did. I thought, I'm getting married tonight. I'm having duck l'orange. The French are going to be involved here. And, uh, and, and so here's the thing. It made me sick, which is not what I was looking forward to before asking Mary to marry me. But in spite of my breath l'orange and, <laughs> and uh, all the rest, she did say yes, thankfully. But I have a wonderful memory of that night and I have a digestive memory that night. They're not the same. <laughs> and, and a part of it is because ducks eat uh, mollusks and stuff like that off the bottom of the... You're, you're, you're tasting it. It's, it's stronger than you might think. There's a reason why some people like grain-fed beef. It's because it's not strong. And you're eating whatever they ate. And so a part of that is what's behind this the animals that have a cud generally are eating grains. And, and so it's clean nutrition. That, that's the thing. So there's, this is not arbitrary. I want us to understand. We don't understand everything of why the dietary law is exactly as it is. We don't. But we do know that there is dietary wisdom, particularly for a people who have no quality control of food. There is no FDA there, there is no meat inspector. And, uh, and so the tendency of any hungry people is to scavenge. But still, this is not merely dietary advice. The, the strictures against pork are not primarily having anything to do with the danger of trichinosis, which is a very big danger. Very big danger. It, but it doesn't appear to be just that. But the, the, the chewing of the cud, again, there is there's dietary wisdom in that, because you are getting, you are eating the flesh of animals that have not been eating other animals. And so all that I read to you, which I, I, I do understand as you do, just because it makes sense that the food is partly digested. You see the cow chewing. I had cows when I was growing up. The farm was right behind us. I could go out to the, to the back. I could stare at these cows and they would stare at me as I was a little child. And they were always chewing. So my mother says that when I was just a little toddler and I'd look at the cows, I would move my mouth just in sympathy with the, with the cows because that's, that's what they're doing. But 
I was not chewing the cud. I don't have one. So the way it works is that those animals eat the, the, the high uh, cellulose content grain they're generally eating, and yet they don't have enzymes in the early digestive system to start breaking things down the way you do in your saliva. It's just, it's just I mean, this, is, yeah, this is Sunday school. Uh, yeah. But uh, we are monogastric, as we're described here, along with pigs. But uh, what happens is, is that they begin the chewing process and the wetting process, and there is a little bit of digestion that takes place, but then it goes down to a lower level where there are enzymes that get, that get stronger, but then it gets taken back up into the mouth to be chewed again and again and again. And I really don't understand this, but I probably don't need to. But by the time you're looking at a cow chewing, that cow is enjoying that meal yet again. <laughs> and evidently to contented peace. Because one of the reasons why, by the way, you, you see the poets, the British poets, you know, cows and, and, and the cows chewing the cud, it is an incredibly... I mean, even when you hear it, if you're around cattle and you hear that, it's a very sweet, peaceful sound. It's a very big difference between a cow staring at you with those big eyes, chewing the cud, and a tiger over with his mouth and maw filled with blood over his kill. It's a different look. Not that I've seen the latter in person. Okay, so here you have, you can eat the cloven-hooded, uh, hooved, cloven-hooved, and, uh, and choose the cud. Nevertheless, verse 4, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. And the rock badger, we don't know exactly what this is, but it's, it's clearly one of the desert animals. Uh, it, it appears to be a fairly good size animal. Uh, also, the hare here that is, that is mentioned is not exactly a rabbit, but uh, is a larger desert mammal there. And there it is, again, the hare I, I mentioned, because it chews the cub, but it's not part the hoof. It has a foot. Now, again, what difference does that make? We don't know. It, this one does not appear to have a dietary explanation, because it's not like you have, you know, it's not like the rabbits with its you know, mouth surrounded by blood, you know, having killed some kind of victim and eating its flesh. We, we, we don't know. That would be a Monty Python movie. <laughs> See, that's a generational thing. A lot of people here have no idea what it was. And those who are, are surprised I mentioned it. But nonetheless. <laughs> um, verse 9, these you may eat of all that are in the waters, so now we're getting to the fish. But I want you to notice something in verse 8 before we leave it. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So you can't, it's not just you don't eat them, you don't touch them. That's going to come back up. But now we're talking about what's in the water. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales, of the swarming creatures in the waters, and of the living creatures that are in the waters, is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. So this is why there are no Jewish oyster bars. 
And this is why there are no Jewish catfish restaurants even in the South. That is not to say kosher. Um, and so there, there, is no, there is no kosher catfish. And uh, you, can, you can recognize a catfish distinct from other uh, fish you may catch because it has no scales. It has basically skin and is disgusting because of what it eats. It, it's, it's like worse than other things imaginable because it is the lake sewage system. And, uh, and, and you say, well, yeah, you know, but I love catfish. Well, okay, it's not, it's not, you're not kosher, you're fine, you, you can eat it. Uh, but the catfish you're eating is probably uh, commercially raised catfish such that it's not going to taste like what you would get out of a pond where the catfish has been in there for 15 years as a sewage system. Now again, this is one of the reasons you fry it, okay? Because you're not tasting the catfish the way you would eat it if you just say, took it out and boiled it, which is a fairly disgusting thought. But, but again, you can eat it, I can eat it because of the New Covenant, but it, it does come with a certain logic, like the pork with trichinosis and like, like other animals that are bringing other animals' problems, perhaps even viruses and molecules and, and all of that into it. When, it. when it comes to catfish, we can at least understand it. And it's not just catfish, it's other things. So here's one of the things about fish with scales. What do they do? They swim. They swim a lot. Where do they swim? They swim in the cleaner parts of the water, the cleaner levels of the water. And so there's sense to this. And I'm not saying there's not sense where we don't understand it, but what I mean is we actually can infer some reason why there would be an advantage to Israel. But again, that assumes that, assumes that Israel is, is at times going to be hungry. There's still things they can't eat. All right. What about the birds? Verse 13. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. Mary and I had the greatest hoopoe casserole just not too long ago. I'll admit, I don't know exactly what it is. Uh, for one thing, you, you, this is where we do have some real translation issues, just to try to understand exactly what it is. Uh, you know, in the, if you look at the, the, the King James, they're not allowed to eat the land crocodile. Well, I don't want to. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's probably a desert lizard described as a land crocodile. But nonetheless, we're birds here, birds. Okay, now notice the same thing is really taking place. You're not going to eat predators. You're not going to eat vultures, owls. What do owls eat? Mice. So you eat an owl, you're eating mice. And, uh, and, and so you don't do that. You don't eat scavengers. One of the most fun things, we, we were driving to our family, so we had, you know, Katie and Christopher were probably, I don't know, like 14, 11, something like that. And uh, we drove through Florida the way only a Floridian would drive through Florida, uh, through uh, places like Immokalee, 
other places. Tourists, trust me, don't go, and there is no, there's no Ritz-Carlton Immokalee. Trust me. And uh, so this is interior of Florida, and, and it's ranches, and it's, it's, just, it's just farms, and it's just stuff. But we came across this animal dead, and it was a cow, and it was bloated. It looked like the Goodyear blimp. Its feet were up in the air, and this thing was going to blow. It was so full of gases. The first thought we had was, this is going to be a sight, because this thing, it's like a balloon. The thing is blown up massive. But the funny thing is, it's all the birds waiting, all the vultures waiting, all the buzzards waiting. They were in the trees all over, and it was just like they were watching Jiffy Pop, you know, about to pop. <laughs> and it was just one of these pictures of nature you look at. You don't even have to explain it. You just look at it, and it's like, wow. If we had time, we'd wait. We didn't. But you look at that, and you realize vultures, this is what they eat. You know, you, you, you're out in the country, and you pass, and there's dead animal on the side of the road, and they're the ugliest birds. Doesn't God, by the way, give you some pretty, I mean, this is where snakes will fool you. There are beautiful snakes that will kill you. But man, those birds, gee, oh, you don't have to be told this is a disgusting bird. <laughs> My grandfather used to, used to his, his way of speaking to someone, that, not with anger, just with mild irritation, was he would call them, he'd say, he'd say you know, I'll talk to you later, bird breath. <laughs> you know, again, when you're a child, how do you know? You're even smelling bird's breath. But... Uh, all I can tell you is whatever bird breath I don't want to smell, it's buzzards. And, and so you have here, and you think, well, this makes sense. But it also, you fast forward to positively, what does this mean? This means the Jewish people are known for... Okay, I'll put it this way. I was in a pod, this is what it was, educational liberalism of the 1970s. I was in a special educational program, and we had a pod. There were three boys in the pod. I had a Roman Catholic kid and the son of the Reformed rabbi and me. And so it sounds like a joke. You know, we walked into a classroom. <laughs> and, uh, and every day was an adventure. But I, I would study. Sometimes we'd study in the rabbi's house because he had, he had you know, just marvelous the library and everything. It was, it was just fantastic. And, uh, but he was reformed, so I won't go into this now. So to say, he was a rabbi. He believed in Judaism. He did not believe in God. That was one of my first introductions to theological liberalism. But, uh, but he was a rabbi, and that meant that there was plenty of surus, the Yiddish for turmoil. And uh, like something would go wrong in the synagogue, or something would go wrong. And uh, this, it's, it's just like it was like a sitcom. And it's because culture matters. And so he would not be happy. Oh, this has happened. This is, a, I believe, in there studying. We'd be working on, you know, the history of three 15 year olds. And meanwhile, out here are the adults. And the rabbi's upset about something. And Ron's mother always had the same response. She would just listen to what the rabbi said. And then she would say, I'll make soup. <laughs> and <laughs> this is like, you know, peace. It's two countries at war. I'll make soup. And, and it's chicken soup, chicken broth, chicken soup, very Jewish. There's nothing, there's, you know, chicken broth, matzahs in it. This is, I'll make soup. And uh, so you have chicken. So chickens are good. Chickens are good. Uh, but you don't eat buzzards. 
It's just, it's just a different thing. And you see how the culture, even, even now, we associate certain things we do eat and don't eat with the Jewish people for theological reasons, which is very different. than We know what Chinese food is, but there's no theology implicit in Chinese food. And by the way, the quickest theological differences is that you might say in one sense most of the stuff on that plate would not be on a Jewish plate. But that's another story. All right, so but the, but the animal, the uh, the birds, no no predator and no scavenger. Verse twenty: All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Now this is going to strain you, because this is where you're tempted to say, "I really want to eat all these things." Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet, with which to hop on the ground. Now I just again I looked at this. I remember the first time I read through the Bible. Whole, whole Bible, I was just 13 years old, 8th grade, I was reading it through, and I got to, you know, how closely do you, you pick these things up and go, well, where is the hinge on this leg? Um, and just look at the note, this has to be wisdom passed down, so that, because you're not just going to every time examine this, you're going to raise your children to say, you can eat these bugs and not those bugs. But you look at that and you go, this is still disgusting. Okay, but if you are really, really hungry, these are the bugs that fly and they're not scavengers. They, they, they don't, they don't, they're not like flies that land on dead things. Okay, you following the logic? These are like uh, caterpillar-like things. I, I, I want to get this right. Or you might say a cicada. There, we, that, that we understand. Has a big little fleshy part you can pluck out of the insect, right? Now that you've done it, don't look at me like that. I'm not accusing you of being a cicada fan. I'm just saying, you know, you can see where there's certain kinds of bugs that have these big abdomens and they fly and they don't do dirty things and they don't eat dead stuff. And so you can, you know, you can eat that and, and you're okay. This is not meaning this was the diet. This is, not mean, this is, again, this is a desert people who are going to be living in a land in which there, there will be the necessity sometimes to figure out what you can eat. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind. Again, you can, it has that abdomen. The bald locust of any kind, which is kind of, kind of hilarious. Uh, a bald locust. It's a species. The cricket of any kind and the grasshopper of any kind. And you're looking at it going, I, I don't want to eat that. They did not want to eat that. Well, you may be hungry. This you may eat. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. So here's something else we notice. It's not like this is good, better, best. We don't have three categories here, right? No three categories, two. Good and holy on the one hand and detestable on the other. So the holiness code, as, as related to these dietary laws, are acceptable and unacceptable, good and bad. There's, there's no tertium quid. There's no third category. We're going to follow just a little bit further to, to, to get to an understanding. In verse 24 we read, And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Okay, now then it's going to be, it's going to be some repetition as we shall see next Sunday. Some repetition and, and then some elaboration but now it is even just about touching, touching. So it turns out that it's not just eating, but touching. God is telling us something about the holiness of his people that extends to the fact that they are 
unclean if they touch certain things, even if they do not eat them. So this creates a necessary distance, right? Just think physically. This creates a necessary distance. If there is a pig right there, this will become so crucial to understanding the parables of Jesus, absolutely crucial to understanding so many later biblical texts. The, the parable of the prodigal son, as we shall see next week, most importantly, he was even envious of the pigs. He'd been, he'd been, he was feeding swine in his degradation. So it's not just what you eat, it's the proximity to what you eat. By the way, if you are an expert in public health, this turns out to have a public health logic. But what we're going to see next week is that the public health logic doesn't come close to explaining all this. Because there are, there are public health, there are things that are forbidden that don't have any obvious public health or, or frankly, just health benefit. But, but you do see this, and even the proximity. But more than that, as we conclude this morning, what you hang around with is just as important to the Holiness Code of Israel as what you eat. What you touch is just as important as what you eat. I hope you find this as fascinating as I do. I, I, I find this kind of passage, which most Christians think you just read through in a hurry, you all of a sudden realize there is so much more here. And as the Lord wills, next Sunday we'll get to turn to the conclusion where astoundingly the strongest New Testament passage about the holiness of Christ's church comes right out of this chapter and the command not to eat bugs. We have to wait for that. We are now preparing for worship. What a privilege to be together for the study of God's Word. By God's grace, we'll see you next Sunday. Father, we're just so thankful for all that you've given us in this passage. Father, we don't want to miss a syllable of it. We want to see your glory in it. We praise you for being this God, the one true and living God, who has given this good law to Israel. But even as we read it, we come to it in the law of Christ by your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.